Adventure to Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, and I'm here uh, with Sarah Pasquale, our Executive Director here at Resonate Church. Hey, everybody. And we are continuing uh, with Second Samuel and First Chronicles and a bunch of stories that you read this week and you're like, wow, this sounds like the exact same story I just exactly. read. And it is. And It is interesting fun. how... like. I hope maybe you'll pay attention or at least now pay attention to when the author of Chronicles basically verbatim writes what the author of Second Samuel did versus when the author takes a little bit of a different direction. Yeah, that's actually um, when you deal with the Gospels, uh, we, we will deal with them all separately. But sometimes it's a really important question to sometimes go, OK, like when Luke tells the story, what does he leave in? What does he leave out compared to Matthew? What does Matthew accentuate? All those kind of things um, become um, sometimes really important interpretive mm-hmm. cues uh, of what each of the authors is actually after That's and what true. they emphasize. And the same thing with Chronicles. So what Chronicles, what the Chronicler includes uh, is what is important to him as he retells these stories. And so um, but sometimes like this week, it's almost word by word and we just have to keep reading twice through everything. Maybe that quickens your reading this week. I hope so. Uh, and so uh, we start off with David having a bunch of victories. Yeah. All, all he does is win. And um, So yeah. we see Israel growing strong. They are becoming what God's dream and design for them was because they're obedient, because of David's obedience. Yep. They're so dealing it's with looking good. Things are looking pretty good so far. Um, and uh, we hear about some of David's officials uh, that offices are taking. And we hear once again around this idea of administering justice or equity, um, which which follows David around. It's a great term. Uh, it's important sometimes to know uh, injustice. Uh, in English, we, we have the word justice, but in Hebrew, there's actually a few words. Um, and the two main ones are mishpat and zedekah. Um, mishpat is used a little less, and it's sort of like retributed justice. Like, you did this, therefore the penalty back is this to set to set the thing right. Um, when Zedekah is sometimes this um, restorative justice where um, things were, were not correct and it's restoring a relationship, restoring things as they should be. Um, mm. It has a much more almost positive uh, a connotation to it. And, um, and so depending on how you define justice uh, in English, um, sometimes you lean one of those ways or the other, but in Hebrew, we actually have two different terms for them. And so uh, here in this in this constant re, um, statement around justice and equity, Zedekah is the word that's used. It's sort of this, um, David's administering this sort of restorative nature of um, setting things right as the, as, as the king over Israel. Yeah, I think there's, we see a picture of the kingdom of God here and we see David knowing that his blessing and his power and his influence, it's come from the Lord. It's not come because he earned it. And so he wasn't fighting or scrambling for more control or influence, but allowing the Lord to bring it about how God chose to bring it about. And so there seemed to be like a lot of confidence that David had at this point in his status before God and his provision. And so he, um, he offered justice and equity freely, knowing that it was freely given to him. Yeah, and we're going to see some of the kindness of David, of him enacting these things that yeah. really he doesn't have to. Uh, he he's um, we we hear about uh, Mephibosheth. I get that right, uh, and um, we'd already been introduced to him in, in chapter four, where I kind of joked about um, this random one liner about this crippled kid. Um, but like as a king, you would definitely take out any lineage to the king that might have had uh, some sort of claim to the throne. And yet what we see David do here is 
be kind, sort of reconcile with sort of the Saul's side of the family and uh, provide for this this random guy. Yeah. So again, yeah, this is a perfect example of David ruling with justice and equity and not scrambling or clamoring for power, but receiving it from God. Yeah. He doesn't wipe him out. And and then there's like a little mini gospel lesson, I think, in here. Like we, uh, as, as, as born in Adam, like we're in the line of the wrong king. Uh, we're born in sin in Adam. And yet we are invited into the palace of the king and we're given grace at the table of the Lord. And so um, I think, I think there's this little picture that we get out of the story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, David has to deal with these folks from Ammon um, that, through the Ammonites. And um, he, he sends some people down because, hey, they got a new king before they seem to be on good terms. And uh, David wanted to make sure that they stay on good terms. But uh, they think that David's up to no good and sent some spies. Um, so they shave part of their face and then uh, they actually have their buttocks hanging out. And that's actually the, the actual Hebrew uh, is a statement that uh, their pants are cut in such a way that their their buttocks are just hanging out. And so um, apparently uh, this is a good way to shame people, which makes sense yeah. even to this day. Uh, and so, um, yeah. And so, but for an honor shame culture, this is obviously very offensive. Um, they even have to like spend time in Jericho to maybe regain their honor by growing their face back out and stuff. Um, but, uh, David sends Joab and eventually David goes and deals with it himself. Um, and it's a question yeah. of like, why are we telling the story? And, and Sarah had a good theory that, um, maybe it's related to these two groups who ultimately don't work together, uh, after this between the Arameans and, the and the Ammonites. And so, um, yeah, it's probably true. There's probably some history being like, why do these two groups hate each other? It's like, well, remember when David did this and they tried to work together and it didn't work out. So, um, it's, it's always good things to think about like why record the story? Cause it's just a more detailed version of victories that we just heard about. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And I do think it's like, it's noteworthy that, that these other kingdoms were like they found David's generosity with this to be kind of unbelievable, so unbelievable that it turned into a war. Um, and then again, David ruling with justice and equity and freedom, knowing that rule is given from God. He wasn't trying to necessarily at this point gain more power than he needed, but, but was honestly just kind of trying to be kind and friendly to other nations. Yeah. And then uh, we jumped into first Chronicles, which um, as you read, very similar story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, same thing happened. Buttocks are out. Beards are trimmed. Uh, and um, and David and Joab respond. Uh, the chronicler, if you noticed, might have um, embellished his numbers a little bit grander. Hey, but that just tends to be the thing we do as time goes by. Uh, the fish you caught that was only like a foot long is now as wide as you can reach your hands. And so um, the chronicler is certainly, uh, uh, I think, doing similar similar storytelling. Yeah, there's a passage in, or there's a verse in this one. Um, it says, be strong and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. And I think it's a really great verse that that gives a commentary on us submitting and surrendering to the sovereignty of God, but also playing a role in using our own effort. So they didn't just sit back and wait in this circumstance. They went into battle, but they also trusted God to do what was good to him and in his sovereignty to to bring about, I guess, what what God wanted to bring out. So we have a role to play in fulfilling God's work on earth, even though we do ultimately trust his sovereignty. Yeah. And so um, when we get into uh, this next section, it really becomes an interesting section because 
um, I I think my theory is that the chronicler, um, instead of telling uh, the story that we're going to get in Samuel here, um, it moves to this conversation about Reba and and then is about to move into a census as sort of these turning points to um, his story around David and, yeah. and and it kind of becomes a little bit of the downfall of David. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the chronicler is reflecting back on David's life. And yes, there were these very deep individual sins that, that Samuel will, will talk about. But I think what the chronicler will deal with is the, the desire for power and empire and um, his, his own sort of comfortability in sort of his kingly role uh, that David starts stepping into. And it starts, I would argue, actually at this story, because um, mm-hmm. he heads to this area that's outside of the promised land. Reba exists outside of of Gad. It's, it's across the border, um, and yet they sort of just go out there and start fighting with these people. And so, um, and and David sort of wins. And he takes the crown. He puts it on his head. There's sort of like this weird, awkward sort of like taking power and seizing power and and trying to to be this this conquering powerful king right which is just so different from what we just saw with the ammonites and the syrians yeah and 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 this is so counter like the god is the god of the 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 younger sibling and the one who makes a mighty nation out of these nobodies and the one who tells them not to raise up armies like the countries around them and not to have kings like the kings around them and not to it's always backwards yet david i think is starting to step into building this empire just like all the countries around them and it's going to play out in solomon too and so um yeah i I think this is starting to be the turn of that and the census is going to be really the 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 big piece of that yeah yeah so get ready guys (laughs) but then we get this little philistine story and the giants are killed um there's a bunch of sixes which is always a trigger to say like these are pretty terrible things or terrible people or terrible men um and it feels maybe like a reset story like maybe this is a reminder for david like hey remember where you came from remember how like your seven brothers before you like were better candidates in the world's eyes than you were and but you went out and you were the one who fought the philistines but you did that only by the power of god and so there's this giant philistine giant story again and i don't know if it's reset i don't know if it's a reminder like look this is where we came from like god doesn't look at the outside but looks at the heart and so um i don't know it's just an interesting timing to put that story right there i think you know in first samuel we looked at a lot of this like these parallel paths that saul and david took and walked along but here we're looking like and then we just kind of narrow in on david and we see his faithfulness and his obedience and his trust in god we see it in the psalms we see it in chronicles and in second samuel but now i think we're heading to a different kind of like divergence where we'll see these two parallel roads but they're both david they're david's choices and some are submission to god or surrender or repentance and others are arrogance and being power hungry or being selfish and so just kind of pay attention to these little parallel paths we're going to walk of seeing the things that David did that were wise and humble and trusting God and the things that he did that were foolish and worldly and seeking his own kind of power and yep. kingdom. Yeah. And, but we also jump into the mess that is first Corinthians uh, and the good yeah. and the bad that comes with that. And it's important to note. So a little bit of the context of Corinth 
Corinth was a major port city. Uh, a lot of diverse people came through there. Um, a lot of different ethnicities, trades, multiple forms of worship in the city. Um, there was a battle probably for people to be distinct, to find identity. Um, and, and that was a challenge for the church of what, what do, how do people find identity together uh, when they all come from all these different sort of worlds and things like that, and they, they're divided. Um, and so that's a struggle for the city. Um, their goddess of the city was Aphrodite. Uh, Poseidon was the, 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 the male one, which makes sense. Yeah, it's a port city, but Aphrodite was sort of their female goddess, and um, Aphrodite uh, is is a goddess of sexuality. It was a central practice. There were over a thousand temple prostitutes and priestesses in the service of that city, and so it was pretty central. And the Corinthians were known for sexuality and and drunkenness. Uh, that was that was a common uh, refrain in the history books about them. Uh, and and you even had. Um, in sort of the, the medical sort of form of worship, because there was no way to divide worship from medical care. Um, and, and that, um, Gordon Fee talks about, and he says that uh, in Corinth, there's evidence um, of all these facets of life. And here uh, on one of the walls is a large number of clay votive of human genitals that have been offered to the God for healing for that body part, apparently ravaged by venereal disease. Like this is Corinth and Oof. it's a mess. And he describes Corinth as all at once, New York, Los Angeles and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Um, and they did have temples there. Uh, Sclepion, the, the sort of health uh, God, there was a lot of temples for him too. And they found all these clay body parts, um, all these sort of um, uh, households had these clay body parts in it as if they had offered something for some healing of body parts. And there was a lot about the body that the city would have known too. And so when Paul makes some of the, his analogies later in the letter, that's going to make sense. He's going to use an analogy that makes sense for his audience, which is totally awesome. Um, but he spent one and a half years there. Um, so uh, he really started and founded this church. He has a, a deeper relationship with this collection of people. He'll even name people by name as he goes. And so uh, it's important to note, this isn't like a city he only spent two weeks in. This is this is a place he spent some time in. Yeah. And the way the letter is structured and organized is it's kind of like him writing a bunch of short essays on different topics. He's hitting on some really specific issues that the Corinthian church was struggling with. So kind of read it like there's the introduction, which we'll hit today, which is kind of long. And then he'll start to hit on these different areas around um, divisions or sex or food or what church gatherings should look like, uh, the resurrection, um, and go into greater depth on that. But it is a really like a pretty tender pastoral letter. So anyway, we'll keep going that. Yeah. And, and when we get to some of these epistles, we'll, we'll kind of fly through a little bit because you just kind of have to. Ugh, um, it's so hard. And because, <laughs> I mean, we could preach on almost every line or teach on almost every line in this letter, but um, we'll, we'll do a little bit of a flyby and note a few things Thanks as we sure. go. Um, some of the letters we might slow down on a little bit more, but um, yeah. So uh, Paul opens with his sort of statement of apostleship uh, and apostleship's a big deal. It's sort of the, um, just as a messenger of the king would, would have to have some sort of um, um, thing that helped to make them uh, the official messenger, apostleship was sort of that uh, for the early church. And if you were one of um, those directly commissioned by Jesus, and Paul insists that he was because of his vision on the road to Damascus, uh, that he comes with a, as a special, unique messenger of of God. And, and it's difficult because the word apostle just also means sent ones or messengers. Um, just the same way the word deacon does in, in scripture, deacon is a servant, but it also seems to be an office. I think the same thing is here too. There are sent ones and everybody that's, that's called by Jesus as a, as uh, in, in, in is a believer, like the great commission is ours and we're apostles, but at the same time, um, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, New Testament church picture of an apostle that's mm. that carries with it a different form of authority. 
So he will defend it here. He'll have to do it later on uh, in this second letter, which is also really his fourth letter. Uh, so it's important to note because you're going to notice this when you're reading. Uh, Paul refers to an earlier letter. So this is not his first letter to the church in Corinth. This is actually likely his second. And so, um, yeah, so he's he's had to deal with stuff before. Have. Yeah, it's what we got. Uh, yeah. It's the one that God desired to preserve through the early church. Yeah, and I'll hit on this a lot at the beginning, but I just, you know, he he begins by affirming their status as God's people, that they are being sanctified. They're being conformed to the image of Christ, which is important for us as we read to hear who Paul's who Paul sees them to be despite all the stuff that's going on. Yeah, yeah. The calling them saints right away is great. Yeah. Um and, and speaks of their unity with all saints and all churches. Like he he's going to hit on all these unity themes pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh he mentioned Sosthenes, which we would have read about in Acts eighteen, uh, who became a synagogue ruler who have apparently becomes a believer uh, and that this crowd knows. Um and he's so thankful. He seems so thankful for this crowd. He's thankful always for them, for God's graciousness to them, that they're rich and how they talk about Jesus, how they know Jesus or get to know Jesus, their giftedness, how they're waiting for Jesus' return. He, he puts all this out. And, and like as we go in this letter, it's going to be like, I don't know, pastorally, if I'd be a whole lot thankful for this church that just feels like a mess and, yeah. and is just screwing up in big ways on some big things. But um, uh, Paul is just so great being like, look, I love you guys. Jesus is doing a work in you. I know he'll finish that because God is faithful, not right. because you guys are all that faithful, but God is faithful. And so um, he just has hope in the midst of the mess of this church. Yeah, he's, he does. I like that idea of this hope where he's got this real peace that the endurance that comes from Christ is going to sustain them to the end, even though he's about to hit on all the stuff that is making them fall apart. Uh, which maybe he at times has been like, is you know, is the Corinthian church going to make it? I don't even right. know what's happening. But instead, he's like, listen, it's it's all dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, and, and Jesus is referred to eleven times in those first nine verses, and so um, I, I think Jesus, Paul is not unintentional in that. I think um, what he's about to deal with in the next section uh, ties into that for him mm-hmm. to be like, look, Jesus is the main thing, and it's all about Jesus, and we're united by Jesus, because then he starts dealing with their problems where people are like, well. I like Apollos and Apollos is my guy and I like Paul and Paul's my guy or Cephas or probably even some people that do the catch all sort of spiritual, super spiritual, like, well, I just follow Jesus alone and I have my own personal relationship or maybe something along that way where it's like, I don't, I don't even need a preacher. Um, and so, uh, so it's very divided and ultimately I would argue that's the problem. Not, not people having preferences over certain preachers. There's a little bit of that. That's probably totally acceptable. But at the same time, when it develops into disjointedness or thinking that you're better because you're in Paul's camp versus Apollo's camp, or he, or if it just causes division, that that's where um, the, the real problems are, the schisms, the, the, the divisions that he speaks of. Yeah. And I think, you know, in different w- expressions of it, but I think this can happen to us in, in modern day. We have like our favorite pet teachers of who we read all their tweets or we read all their blog posts and then someone shares something else and you're like, I know, but have you heard the John Piper version of this? Or um, And it doesn't, you know, we can all appreciate different teachers because the, God uses them to speak to us in different ways, but to be cautious that I'm not a bigger fan of yeah. Matt Chandler than I am of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Spur- Spurgeon on this text talks about that a bit. And I don't remember the exact quote, but he, but he sort of talks about how, um, how, how thankful he is that there's other pastors who, who might have a few different doctrines than him on the mm-hmm. non-essentials and that, um, that the more of the gospel can be expressed and go forth because of it. And so, um, to not be divided over those things. Yeah. 
And so uh, I even like Paul's sarcasm here. He's like, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Like he's, he's pointing out just their struggles of like, why would you, why would you even like try to pick me um, as your main guy? Like Jesus is your main guy. You were baptized in his name. Um, and, and then he even like, I, I'm glad I didn't even baptize some of you. Cause then you might claim that like you were baptized in the name of Paul. Like I'm glad. And then he's like, well, I did, I did actually baptize a few. <laughs> he's like, I can't, I can't even remember you. <laughs> Um, but he reminds them, look, I didn't come here to impress you. I didn't come I, like if I did that, then the power of the cross itself would have been emptied by like whatever I added to it and tried to oppress you. And, and he came, it's interesting because he came from Athens where he was probably in some ways working with the great philosophers at the time. Maybe he tried to impress. It's hard to know. Um, but he came to Corinth right after that and said, look, I came and I spoke to you plainly and I let the Holy Spirit do what's going to do. Yeah, I think I just I, I really feel Paul's love for them in this. You know, I'm thinking that he's like, I can't remember where where is he right now when he's writing this letter? Uh, probably uh, in Ephesus, I think. OK, so he's in Ephesus and then like Chloe comes and is like, oh, man, you would not believe what's happening in Corinth, <laughs> you know, and I just feel like him like loving them so much. I don't know that this is how it went down, but just immediately responding to me like I have to write them and I have to encourage them. Yeah. Um, but. You know, it's gotten bad if Chloe's people are coming yeah. all the way over to tell Paul. Apparently, what's going Chloe's on. got some bad news. A little different than Timothy and Thessalonians. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we hear about this. We get into these arguments around wisdom and power and foolishness mm. and the natural person versus the spiritual person. And he definitely creates this sort of um, dichotomy of the two. And it, it's, if you really want, it's probably worthwhile time wise to like chart out how he describes the, yeah. the spiritual versus the natural. Um, but it's foolishness. And this message of the cross is, is foolishness. And we probably don't grasp just um, how strong uh, that that idea of the cross um, would be uh, for a culture, both Jewish and Greco-Roman, of power and um, control and victory and position and might and success and honor, all these things that are so central to um, – uh, um, what is wisdom and what is right and what is true. And for them to come along and be like, no, the, the, the word, I have the word of the cross, which I mean, the, it's hard to, it's hard to compare. It's not exactly the electric chair. I think um, uh, James Cone is probably right. It's like the word of the lynching tree. Like that's like the shameful murderous story that we tell of, of what happened to Jesus. Though I know he's certainly in control, but the circumstances are, they were just trying to murder him. And um, Paul acknowledges that, that, that to those who are natural, like, it's the most foolish story in the world that's so counter the narrative of the world. But for those of us who have been quickened or being saved, like it's power, there's power to yeah. it. And we see that. And for every reason, God has opened our eyes to, to see it and understand it and feel that power from, that comes from it. Yeah. I think as Christians, we need to expect that the world around us is going to have some sort of response to the way that we live. And oftentimes, if they don't know or understand the Lord, they're going to be confused by it. You know, the choice to give money to church or to help the unreached people hear the gospel is going to confound those who are living to accrue wealth. Uh, the choice to bring a foster child into your home sounds really impossible for people who just want to be comfortable at all times. Or um, the choice to wake up early every day and read your Bible instead of getting extra sleep seems like a waste of time to the world. So we've got to step back 
and remember the wisdom to us must be from God. It must be centered on his kingdom, which is really an upside down kingdom like we've talked about. So be cautious, believers, if what you would call wise and what the world would call wise end up being the same thing a lot. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe that car payment or that thing just for me or whatever that looks like isn't actually as wise as it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, once again, it's just the dilemma that Paul deals with. Like there were Jews and what they would have expected was a Messiah that came not only with military might, but, but with, with sort of miraculous work, maybe like, um, Moses taking them out of the, out of, out of, um, Egypt and things like that, like these miraculous power that should accompany the Messiah. And the Greeks had their heroes that were wisdom and philosophy and, and, and all the sort of pieces that came with that. And he's like, look, like, that's not what I came and with, and and I came to to preach Jesus as Messiah yeah. and Him crucified and Him being killed, and yet that being where the power really lies. Mm. And so, um, to them, it's, yeah, it's just confusing and foolish. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. And Paul even points out to the crowd themselves, he's like, "Look, you guys weren't even that great. Like, you guys aren't." the great philosophers and you guys aren't the people in power and you guys aren't the prefect over this area and stuff like that. Like you're, you're not the people that are the, the central identifiers of, of what is um, mm-hmm. control and power and true of, of, of the thing. But in God you are because Jesus can work through you and, and do the things that, that only God can do supernaturally through you. Yeah. And Paul's kind of setting the stage for this argument because he's about to be like, you know what? It's going to sound crazy to everybody who's not a follower of Christ when I tell you to only have sex with your spouse yeah. or when I tell you not to take somebody who treated you wrong to court. Um, get, get ready because it's going to seem like foolishness, Yeah. but it's not in God's kingdom. Yeah. And so um, he recognizes, uh, Paul sort of recognizes his job and he's like, look, my job. The main thing I came to do was to preach mm-hmm. and not with a, uh, not to wow you, not to try to persuade you in it, but just to preach and trust that the power of the spirit would do what it's going to do. Um, I heard a preacher recently kind of talk about what our job is uh, sometimes as preachers. And I think it would be true of anybody talking about the gospel to somebody who doesn't know it. He says, our job, like Ezekiel, and I know we haven't read that yet, but hopefully um, you've heard the story uh, of Ezekiel preaching to this valley of bones and then the God through the spirit brings them to life. And so that's our job. And, um, we, we go into the world, we, we preach and we trust, we preach to the bones and we trust that the spirit's going to do the work. And I think Paul's making a similar case here saying, look, I came and I, I didn't, I didn't try to persuade you into the kingdom because yeah. if you, I persuade you in, you could be persuaded out. I came to preach it as, as straightforward as I could and trust in the power of God who will bring you in and keep you there. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, I hope this is encouraging to those of us who are trying to share the gospel where we go. And I know oftentimes I feel, and probably a lot of us feel like, I don't know how to say it right. Or I like, I messed it up or I left out this one part or like, I'm just not comfortable sharing the gospel because I think I'm going to screw it up. And here we are told that like, we are free. It is the Lord that brings people into salvation. It's not us. And so it is by God's spirit and God's power that will draw someone. You can muddle it up. You can skip things. You can forget them. Uh, just be obedient. But it's not your job to win someone to Christ. It's your invitation to be the one who shares the gospel, but it's the Lord and the Holy Spirit that do the work to draw someone to Christ. That's really freeing. Yeah, very freeing. Um, and then we start getting t- more talk about wisdom. Uh, and and at first it feels like Paul's being a little bit uh, what's called Gnostic. And we'll deal with Gnosticism uh, and probably in more of a different book than this. But um, 
and and ultimately he's like there's this mystery but but then he clarifies he's like the mystery and he starts quoting isaiah 64 and others he's like the mystery was jesus like it has been made clear like others didn't have everything was a bit of a shadow and now it's been made clear like it's doesn't insider knowledge anymore like everybody can have this knowledge uh, which in the greek world was significant because there was a lot of dealing with insider knowledge um and and paul's like no 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 it's been it's been revealed and you and i and everybody in this church like we all share that knowledge of of who uh, jesus is um and, and so yeah, he uses this analogy. He picks up on Greek philosophy a little bit where he talks about um, one of the Greek philosophy ideas is like is known by like. So like, I can't guess what my dog is thinking because I'm not a dog. And um, the same was true of, of God that uh, in, in sort of Greek philosophy, the, the sort of outside, like we can't know what the gods are necessarily thinking or we can't know what God's thinking because we're not gods. Um, but here Paul takes that argument and spins on its head. He's like, well, the spirit is God. And we have the spirit that like is inside mm-hmm. of us. And so, yes, normally in our natural state, we could not know what, who, who God is. We couldn't know the, how God thinks or anything like that, but, and, and perceive the world as God perceives it. But now we have the spirit. And because of that, like we can speak spiritual things. We can understand spiritual things. The natural world can't. And, and, and so, um, we, we have that. And, and he will go on to say, we have the mind of Christ. Like we are able to think and to speak mm-hmm. and to see things that only can come through um, through the spirit that are yeah. true about the universe um, that much of the world may not define as true about the universe. Yeah, I hope that's just, uh, it leaves me in awe every time I read it to think if I ever end up in a situation where it's like, I don't know what God wants me to do, I can stop and I can ask. And because I have the spirit of God in me who searches everything, even the depths of God, I can know God can give me wisdom. And I don't always make the right decision, but I have access to the right and the wise decision. And we, as with what we believe as Christians, are the only ones who can do this. We are the only ones. If you are saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we have this from God. It's amazing. And again, thinking about how Paul is speaking this to a people who have made a lot of poor decisions that have very little to do with obeying the Spirit of God. It's just so cool that he reminds them of this on the front end. Yeah. And then Paul's like, well, and I want to talk to you as spiritual people, but you're kind of acting like natural people. You're kind of acting as people of the world and the world is divided and broken up and stuff like that. And, and you guys are acting that way too. And, and I, I want to talk to you about deeper things. I want to continue to go into the depths and the riches of the gospel, but I I can't yet because you guys are still acting, um, like, like children. (laughs) Right, and, and so um, he, he's going to remind them of things. He's going to continue to deal with some of that stuff, but um, he reminds them that he, even he and Paul, uh, he even he and Apollos are one. So he's reminding them about this sort of oneness, this togetherness. Um, and then he goes on to say, and I, I think this is an interesting section where he's like, "And y'all are God's building." And he's going to run with that building analogy, and he's going to cap it back off by saying, "And y'all are the temple." And, and I think this. I've always read this section as like each one of us is building our own little house, um, kind of like the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, we got to make sure our individual foundation is laid for the individual house that we build. Um, but I, couched in, in both those opening sections, because it says um, both times it's it's y'all, it's, it's you plural, are God's building singular and you plural are the temple singular. Um, he doesn't get into the body's temple thing. So he'll do that in another section, but, um, here it's, it's singular. And I, and I wonder this whole teaching of like, well, 
Paul's like, I laid the foundation. I wonder if it's the foundation of the church itself. And he's saying, Mm -hmm. I laid the foundation in Corinth and you all will continue to build. Um, not literally, they're, they're not interested in building a building. It's not a building campaign or anything like that. But you all will contribute to the building of the structure that is the church. And each one of you contributes. But make sure you're using the right materials. Mm. Um, make sure you're using the right things to build with, which has to do with deeds, has to do with actions, has to do with words and other things that you will get into. Um, but um, some some may build with, with cheaper materials. And guess what? Like, that's going to be tested someday of what how you contributed to the building of 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 what God was doing in Corinth and um, and and you will still be on the right foundation. So even when the fire comes, you're still going to stand. But it's going to prove uh, in that day just how shoddy your workmanship was. And and it's a reminder of of that of like and 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 he's actually doing it in a very positive way. And he's going, but what you're building is the temple where the spirit of God mm-hmm. dwells in the church. And like, that's the reminder, like you're not building just something you are, you are building the presence of the spirit in Corinth through you guys as a collection of people. And, and so do it and do it well and do it for God's glory. And so, um, yes, I think there could be an individual interpretation. I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but at the same time, I think sometimes we lose out on, on the, the, the plural communal aspect of what Paul might be after here too. Yeah. And just, you know, when he starts talking about, this isn't the last time I'll read about Paul calling us to temple, pause and think back to the hours we spent reading Exodus and learning about the temple, Leviticus, all those things and learning about the temple and the temple's operations and the importance and value of the temple in the Old Testament. And so to understand that we as the church, as a people not building are that new temple it's again, it's kind of awe inspiring yeah. and humbling. It, and it's a reminder to them where they, they are probably like the church is a mess. I don't know. Like we're going to need a whole lot of guidance from Paul or Apollos or Cephas and stuff like that. And I think Paul's reminding them like, no, 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 you have what you need. You have yeah. everything. You have the spirit of God in you. All things are yours. Like I, and I trust that God is faithful to continue to work these things out for you. Yeah. Um, it's so good. It's so comforting. All are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. Yeah. Um, and we get a few Psalms uh, this week. Uh, and the first one uh, is at least in the header of the Psalm is supposed to be tied into um, David going in and battling the, the folks out of the Ammonites. Um, but David feels like a little schizophrenic. It's hard to know. Like he's sort of blaming God. But I remember reading the story and I'm like, it didn't seem like he had a whole lot of reason to like to be anxious about the battle, but I don't know. But um, he's sort of struggling with where God is. And then sort of, he comes around to be like, all right, like, I know you're going to do this. And and it sort of turns it around by the end and trusting in God. But it's, it's a peculiar, <laughs> it's a peculiar Psalm for me to read. Yeah. I think what's good that we see in here is we see David's whole journey to submission and surrendering to God. So he's still, even when he has questions or is in fear, he goes to God. He initially accuses God. He challenges God. He questions God. But eventually after talking to God and thinking on God enough, he kind of settles his heart and starts to focus his mind. And then he's able to see what is actually true of God and his character and his attributes. And then he kind of steps back and is like, oh, right, God, I trust in your sovereignty, not only over these present circumstances, but over all of history, God is sovereign. So we see his journey of questioning God to trusting God after he focused on God's attributes. Yeah, it's a rare psalm by David that he does not arrive at the conclusion mm-hmm. where he leaves it hanging. Yeah. Um, so, and this is no exception. He he resolves by the end. Yeah. 
Then Psalm 20, uh, I think the most significant line to me as I read through it is, is the sort of statement around it's like, this is not about chariots and horses. It's not about the might and power. Like going back to the wisdom conversation, going back to the David conversation, like God's kingdom is built a little upside down from, or a lot upside down from the way we sometimes think about the world. And um, the might and power belongs to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we are called to be the ones who trust in that and not in our own might and power, not in might and power that just makes sense to the eyes. Um, we are people that, that trust in the unseen and, and trust in God's power. And so, yeah, I think the Psalms reminding us of that. Yeah, and this is a messianic psalm, so it's kind of fun to read, again, being on this side of the cross and knowing that all of these answers are met and fulfilled through Christ. And then Psalm 94, this is sort of a, a cry out kind of psalm for probably when they're in exile. Um, they're, they're praying for God to deal with their enemies, those who are mocking them, laughing at them, that are claiming victory over them. But the, there's a reminder, once again, a sort of resolution of of remembering that that that. God does ultimately have some vengeance over every injustice and mm. he's risen up before. He'll continue to do it again. Yeah. It's really yeah. good. I liked, I read this Psalm in a few different ways from a few different perspectives. I imagine what it felt like for Israel to pray the Psalm or what it felt like for a refugee to pray this, uh, what it would feel like for an, an unborn baby uh, to pray this prayer, what it felt like for me even to pray this. And I think we all need different things from God at different times, but but let's let his perfect justice and his tender care of each individual um, and also people as a whole bring us comfort. Yep. So next week, what should we be looking for in the old and the new? Uh, so this next week is where we start to learn about David and um, some maybe of the poor decisions he made, <laughs> especially with his parenting. So I don't know. I think there's kind of like a snowball effect here. So pay attention to what happens with Bathsheba and how it maybe impacts how he, even how he parents or how he interacts with his kids when they start to struggle. Um, and in the New Testament, Paul will talk about a few different things, but one thing I'll talk about is some sexual immorality. And I find what's interesting in this is that Paul doesn't really talk very much about the objectification component of sexual immorality like Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He emphasizes other aspects of it. So pay attention to that and just kind of ask yourself, why is Paul hitting on different reasons to avoid sexual immorality here than Jesus did in Matthew 5? Yeah. Um, and yeah, for me, yeah, we're going to watch David go downhill and rather quickly. Uh, the, the glory days were there and they're mm-hmm. done with. But uh, and, and by the end of the week, uh, David, spoiler alert, Spoiler alert, he'll be on the run again. Um, but um, we're also reading uh, Psalm 51, which is a pretty famous and classic psalm tied into um, David kind of coming to terms with some of his mistakes. Um, it is uh, important just to hold those things in, in, in context and to know he's defined as this man after God's own heart, but yet he sinned really terribly and 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 ruined people's lives for his neglect or his sins. and um, And yet, he, his response isn't Saul's and mm-hmm. and his response is distinct and that we watch that and we watch that through the Psalms. We watch that through the story to remember David's not acting like Saul in these, in these situations. He is acting differently. He might've sinned like Saul uh, in the sin itself, but his follow through on the back end is definitely distinct. Yeah. And then New Testament, uh, I, I say, remember the backdrop that is Corinth. Um, as you read, we're going to see the church struggle with, some of the values of the world versus the values of the kingdom of God that, that is expressed in the church. And um, we're going to see how Corinth struggles with that. And as you're reading, try to think about um, 
America or Atlanta or resonate? Um, what are some ways that um, the, 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 the values and the brokenness that exists in the world it infects the church in, in ways that um, we, we may not notice as much, just like the folks in Corinth seem to probably not notice as much because it was so normative or, or something along those lines. And so um, be thinking about that because I think it's yeah. an important question as we read through those sections. Uh, yeah. Do we do we have someone sleeping with their step stepmom in our church? Probably not. But there might be other things that, that are egregious sins that if someone else from another culture were to walk in being like, wow, I can't believe you guys tolerate that here. And so um, think about what, what that would might Chloe's be. What Chloe's people tell Paul about yeah, us? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. If you were to report to Paul about Resonate, what would they say? But, um, and any non-Resonate people listening about your church or your community. So thanks you all for this week and we will look forward to next week. Thank you. Thank you.